Hey there, history fans. And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the modern age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we are covering the Tower of London escapes. Well, at least four of them. But there's a lot. <laughs> there's there's a hell of a lot more than four, but we're gonna we're gonna hit a major four. But before we get started, don't forget we have an Instagram and a Facebook. Please reach out to us there. History explains it all underscore podcast. That's where we put our today in history, archaeology in the news. And I still need your help in finding a name for Friday's posts. Come on, need your help with comments, need your help with comments. I still don't know what to call this, where we post personal pictures that we've taken of historical objects or places. So uh, please reach out to us and put it in a comment somewhere. We don't really care. I check comments all the time. And uh, if you want to email us, historyexplainsall at gmail.com. Love to hear your thoughts, ideas, topics, whatever you, whatever you think you want to reach out for. Also, if you could leave us a rate and review, that's how people find us. And I think we can now get into the actual subject. So before you started on the, at least the four attempts of escaping the Tower of London, <laughs> that we're going to just, the four people that we chose out of the, a lot of people, um, I'm going to briefly go over just kind of the history of the tower and its use as a prison real quick and get my microphone to stay still there we go i mean it's the tower of london by the way i have visited and it's so cool i've been once well then you need to post those pictures you probably didn't i gotta find them it's been a really really long time like i went when i was in high and beginning of high school so 2006 era okay uh... i got a find them i don't even know if i still have access to them so to get in um the tower of london is old <laughs> understatement so it's as it's pretty much as old as the united kings of england and by that mean william the conqueror old 1066 william the conqueror so after he was victorious during the battle of hastings in 1066 he then began to work on a fortification to subdue the inhabitants of London. In case you're not familiar, William the Conqueror was from France. And he went and France finally won over England, technically, in this instance. <laughs> that depends on who you ask. But uh, he did what he wanted to control English inhabitants, and particularly London, which is a very, very old Roman town. And so, and, and in order to do that, you create a fortress and fortifications. And in fact, when he arrived in London, which again is a Roman town, there was already a very large wall remaining from the times of the Romans. And it was known as London Wall. And originally a lot of things back then were built in wood rather than stone. As we know, a lot of stone keeps and castles are now, or, or a lot of keeps and castles are stone, but originally a lot of them were wood. And with that, William began to erect a castle along the lines of the London Wall. The castle then turned into a keep, or also known as the Great Tower. And that construction was that between 1075 and 1079. And eventually, this keep would also be referred to as the White Tower when it was built into stone, because it was white stone. Originally built as a fortress and royal residence, when King John took control in the early 1200s, he turned it into a royal menagerie starting in 1204. And the story behind that, interestingly enough, is that when John lost Normandy and a lot of the French lands that his predecessors and brother had gained, he was given as a consolation prize by the French, a several crates of exotic animals. And essentially not having any place to really put them he housed them in the tower and thus began the royal menagerie. In 1279, Edward I moved the English mint into the tower. Again, it's a fortress, not a bad idea. And because of that, the mint would remain there until the Georgian eras. And then during the reign of Edward I as well, 
the tower would become the home to a lot of governmental records. So now that, I mean, I think Edward I was late 1300s, if I remember correctly. So by then, England was having kings for about 200 years. So the records were starting to get kind of big and long and all the governmental bodies were doing stuff. So they needed a a place to house them rather than take them with them whenever the king traveled. And it would also remain the place of the Royal Mint for the next several centuries. In June of 1381, 20,000 rebels went against King Richard II. And this was led by a man named Watt Tyler. And they marched to the tower, forming the Peasants' Revolt, which is a really interesting revolt to begin with. And this was actually over a tax that Richard had instituted, which actually prevented people from, or at least the more common folk, from voting because it was a tax you had to pay if you wanted to vote. And if you were poor, you couldn't afford that, so you couldn't vote. So the king said, I'll meet with the rebels. He opened up the gates and the fortification, and the rebels rushed in and began to ransack the buildings within the keep. And they found their way to St. John's Chapel, where they found the Archbishop of Canterbury, Simon Sudbury, captured him, dragged him to Tower Hill, and chopped his head off. He was not really well-liked because he was also influential in creating this tax. Additionally, there are, as Lauren and I have mentioned in a previous, at least a couple previous episodes, one of the biggest mysteries about the tower are the princes in the tower. And if you're not familiar with that, brothers Richard and Edward, who were young princes, were captured and or coerced by their uncle Richard III, placed into the tower while Richard took the crown from the boy's father, his brother. And over the next several months, those who worked in and around the tower saw the boys less and less and less until they just never saw them again. So many believe that the boys themselves were actually murdered by their uncle and his want for the crown. Now, in terms of its use as a prison, between 1100 and 1952, it is estimated that at minimal 8,000 people were jailed there. And there's different tower sections of the entire keep. And their crimes would range between debt, murder, sorcery, treason, and conspiracies. Question. What Mm -hmm. about witchcraft? Sorceries. Uh, witchcraft sorcery falls in the same okay so you're putting them together yeah okay yeah yeah i'm just making sure that i'm understanding okay witchcraft sorcery it's it, it, anything magical related okay they're technically considered two different things so true but back then they were one the same sort of yes but we want i want i'm clarifying for the modern day oh yeah now anyone that was accused i mean it depends on it depends on how grievous your crime was because you could have just been sent to a, a, a local jail rather than the tower. If your crime was pretty egregious, you were sent to the tower. If your crime was against the king or the government, you were sent to the tower. It's more of, it's not just the only jail. It would definitely be more than 8,000 people and roughly and, and, and over 850 years. So it just depends on how egregious your crime was. Now, the very first official prisoner, at least, of the tower was Bishop Ronald Flambard in 1100. And Lauren's going to touch on him in just a couple minutes. But just a very brief background. He was French, and he served both William I and William II, so William the Conqueror and his son, William II. And Flambard was despised by the local English because he was very influential in imposing very harsh taxes on them. And when Henry I took over, which was the second oldest son of William the Conqueror in 1100, Flambard was very quickly imprisoned for his extortion schemes. And not only was he the first official prisoner of the tower, he was also the very first to escape the tower. He apparently had had rope smuggled into his cell and a wine bottle. And although he was well off because he was a bishop and served kings, he, and he, so he kind of lived in a bit of luxury in his cell and he was allowed to have guests and allowed to have furnishings and nice things. On February 2nd of 1101, he had hosted a banquet in his cell, got everyone there very drunk, and then made his way to an inner room of his cell 
lowered himself out of the tower using rope and then escaped. And according to a chronicler of the time, the escape was apparently so unexpected the chronicler accused Flambard of witchcraft because it's just like, and then he's gone in a puff of smoke. And Flambard would flee to Normandy and serve under the Duke of Normandy until his death in 1128. Now, uh, Lawrence's favorite period in history, during the Tudors, particularly the Elizabethan era. Well, the Tudors and the Tower go are, are synonymous. I mean, like I, mean, I said, I'm currently reading a book about Anne Boleyn, who was beheaded on the Tower Green. I'm literally I'm, about to mention that. And, well, I mentioned it for you because I got <laughs> very excited. And not only that, been to where they think she was beheaded. Yes, that made me excited. <laughs> I was like, oh, it was, they think it was here. <laughs> I've been fascinated by this since Forever. I was teenager an early teenager oh yeah oh yeah i better like mute myself right now so that you can actually talk go right ahead <laughs> so <laughs> synonymous obviously with henry the eighth the tudor era and mary as well um saw more deaths in the tower than at any other time in its entire existence well i mean henry was not known for being benevolent well, and mary I was just about to get into that. I mean, for goodness sakes, we called the Bloody Mary drink after her and she was known as um, Bloody Mary. I'm pretty sure the Bloody Tower was also probably named in relation to her. Oh yeah, because you know, <laughs> burn them at the stake. A lot of beheading and torture too. Oh yeah, and to be um, just kind of clear on terms of people dying at the tower, you could die for a variety of reasons. We're not talking just solely executions, natural causes, executions, murder, poison, accidents, torture, torture, um, attempting to escape and dying while escaping. I'm looking at you, Griffith at Blue Ellen. Fell on his head. As he, it fell out the, uh, of the window and fell on his head, broke his neck. So during the, the, the entirety of the Tudor time, no one was exempt except for the king of possibly being put to death on tower grounds church officials, statements, and very obviously, queens. The only person exempt is, of course, the king himself. So if she's not the most famous, she is one of the most famous Tudor-era death-slash-prisoners is Anne Boleyn, of course. Pretty sure she's the most famous. I'm pretty sure she is, but I just wanted to do probably the most, just in case something else came up. It's Anne Boleyn. I know. Well, I mean, the first the the first of Henry's wives to be beheaded. Well, that's why she's the most famous. I, I there was the one where she had her head came or she shaved her head and wore a wig during the execution, and then it fell off, and people thought that it was really crazy. I can't yeah, wife that was Catherine. That wasn't Parr. No, Catherine Parr outlived Henry. Right, she was Catherine she was Howard. Sure. It may have been Catherine Howard. I'm not sure. Yes, Anne Boleyn. And she had a nemesis, not even though so much Henry VIII was her nemesis. Henry VIII was convinced to sign her death warrant, but her nemesis within the court of Henry VIII was none other than Thomas Cromwell, who was actually Henry's chief minister. And this is a really interesting one too. So Cromwell, I don't, you will probably know more than me, Lauren, but because you're, you're a little more versed on it. But I'm not exactly certain why Thomas Cromwell hated Anne Boleyn or seemed to hate Anne Boleyn. But he, she, she was non-Catholic. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, she, she was also just not queenly. I think she was, she was very independent. Oh, she was not queenly. She did not take Henry's indiscretions with grace. She was known for running up and down the hall screeching and being very angry when Henry's attention strayed from her. She so, was not subservient, I, I guess is the way to put it. She was not raised to be a queen. Yeah. Or, or, and to carry herself like one. So uh, Cromwell disliked, first of all, she was not an alliance for England. She was not a marriage of alliance. She did no, not she was, bring she was any of loss more than anything. 
Oh yeah. Like most of Henry's relationships. Uh, she, she didn't bring anything to the crown or England when Henry married her. Right. And she incited the whole issue separation between with the pope in rome oh yeah in the vatican right and she was also a very big french supporter she went to france and lived in france for several years in her childhood and that's where she also was taking lessons so she was a very and she grew up in the french court so she was a very big french supporter which cromwell was not so he disliked her for like I mean, there's a list that could probably be a mile long for the things that Cromwell disliked Anne for. So, um, yeah. So, okay, that makes a lot more sense because that also would play into what Thomas Cromwell did to Anne by also convincing oh. Henry of her many adulterous, though probably fabricated, affairs along with the incest that she probably didn't have with her brother. Among the other very many crimes he tried to have her convicted of. And he was Henry, one of Henry's right-hand men and was very successful in convincing Henry that, that you know, he needed to go find a better wife, essentially. So Henry he was, was convinced and signed her death warrant. And despite maintaining her innocence the entire time, trial, prison sentence and all that, she was executed on May 19th of 1535, I think it was. And <laughs> Cromwell was like, oh, right, I'm victorious. I, I got rid of this really bad queen who was not supposed to be queen. Um, but it was short-lived. <laughs> Lauren's like, yeah, yes, yes, it was. <laughs> and uh, Thomas Cromwell, just a short four years later, was condemned to the tower himself on charges of treason against Henry. And it's really interesting because Cromwell may have even been housed in the very same apartments that Anne had to stay in before she was killed. Yes. There is a post on Anne's death. If you go back into our Instagram, there is on May 19th, a post on that. Cause oh, I can pass that up, of course. Right. But not only that, uh, Cromwell, if we look at it, one, yes. Majority of crimes brought against Anne seem fabricated especially the incestuous one yeah I mean she was desperate for a child but she wasn't for someone who was angry when Henry's eyes strayed she never strayed actually she herself never strayed but also uh what I I find it ironic and you can cut this out of course I find it ironic Anne very loyal young cousin of Anne Boleyn from her mother's side, married Henry. She was the fifth wife, Catherine Howard, the other one to be beheaded, by the way. There were two beheadings, but two is more than enough. But they were cousins, actually. She, Catherine Howard, was the daughter of her, of Anne Boleyn's mother's sibling. Mm-hmm. Because Amblin's mother was a Howard. And Catherine Howard was in, not incestuous, but she was uh, uh, cheating on Henry. You could oh, say. she was, I, I mean, care. she was what, 20 years older, 20 years younger, minimally? Oh, yeah. I mean, she, oh, was, she was closer years to 25 years younger. Yeah. Um, but she was extremely young. I mean, she was also very unprepared for a crown. Yeah. But yeah, the irony is that, yeah. But, you know, Cromwell got rid of one terrible queen and never really was successful. Henry wasn't successful in gaining a very good queen until he married Catherine Parr after Catherine of Aragon. A lot of Catherines. Well, I mean, technically the third wife, but she died. Jane? Yeah, but Jane died early. But again, kind of Jane, hard as hell. Jane wasn't, she didn't bring anything to the table, as they say. She was English already. She brought no alliance, no dowry, no nada. And she, the only thing she did was give Henry a son that he so desperately wanted, who was also, by the way, ironically, sickly. So a lot of, a lot of irony in that whole situation. But I love how we just strayed because of my nerdiness. So keep going. I'm shutting up now. 
Another very majorly famous inmate of the tower is Guy Fox. So uh, Guy Fox, in case you also don't know, attempted to blow up the House of Lords with 36 barrels of gunpowder, more than enough to reduce the entire building to rubble. And he was an anonymous letter tipped people off and he was found and arrested on November 4th. And remember, remember the 5th of November. And then after hours and hours of torture, he finally confessed and was very soon executed. Now, it wasn't until the mid-1800s that the tower had a bit of a change in terms of the things it did. So the Duke of Wellington, who was also the constable of the tower at the time, decided that the tower should be stripped of any non-military uses. So that meant the menagerie and the fact that it housed the crown jewels were now moved to nearby locations. And a garrison was generally used, uh, military, it's a fortress, it was used for military. Now, by the early 1900s, the tower was undergoing even more changes as the idea of using it as a fortress and a prison were becoming less and less. And it was more of a tourist attraction, although it's always kind of been a tourist attraction. Um, it was, it, 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 I mean, there were other jails to send people to. It, it really wasn't used much as an actual jail. That was uh, until World War II. After his capture in Scotland, Rudolf Hess, Hitler's right hand, was ordered to the tower. Churchill was, heard about his capture and ordered him directly to the tower. And Hess, although only spent several days in the tower, before he was moved to another location, he was spent there, I think, about a week there. And he was moved out of the tower on May 20th, 1941, to another more secure location. Mm. And though some believe that Hess was the last prisoner of the tower, it's not, he wasn't though. The Cray twins, or the Cray Cray twins, as you might want to call them, um, <laughs> were housed. You know, those were, they were the very last official inmates of the tower in 1952. So the brothers, Reggie and Ronnie, had been drafted into service in England. And they did not want to do that and ended up deserting and going AWOL. And eventually they would be recaptured and then imprisoned and then uh, moved off to another location where they would spend jail time. Though, obviously, no one is imprisoned in the tower today. The tower still holds many of its traditions that it set over the centuries, like the guards and the people that work there, as well as being a massive tourist attraction for the city of London and one of the most memorable landmarks in the entire country. Also well-known across the world. Well, that was, that's what I meant by that. Well, that's what I got on the brief, although obviously not ending up being brief, history on the Tower of London. So, Lauren, on to you. Let's talk about Randall Flambard, whose name I am butchering, according to Melissa, due to her laughter. I don't care. I'm going to call him Rand. Uh, so, just so you know, he just, you know, bit, he was the first person to be imprisoned in the Tower of London, and he was the first one to escape. Double firsts there, just uh, just to let you know. That's one way to make your way into the history books. Oh, well, I mean, it freaking worked. He was the son of a Norman priest. So just so you know, also, uh, Flambard wasn't really his last name. It was a nickname due to his temper. I mean, that was kind of the thing of the time. Was, yeah, if you use your nickname as your last name or your trade. Yeah, I mean, Smiths but, were called Smiths, not because of something. It's because of what they did. Yeah, and Carpenters, too. Yeah. So basically, before he was in prison, he did begin his career under King William I of England. And uh, let's just say uh, it was pretty good for him. After William I died, Rand continued to work for the new king of England, William Rufus. He really became involved in the financial sector there. And well, let's, he did pretty well 
he was also an architect, by the way. He also worked in the architecture of uh, the, the Castle of Durham. I mean, he did in 1099, he had been so successful with William King William that he gained the Bishopric of Durham in 1099. The nickname really comes from a controversial kind of personality. He was known for being caring and kind, but he was also known for being fiery tempered and very quick to dismiss people. So I think it really just kind of depended who you were. Great person to have on your side, terrible person to be your opponent. In literally a year after he gained the bishopric of Durham, in 1100, William Rufus died. The next king was Henry I. He, I guess, didn't like Rand very much. He used him more like a scapegoat for all the problems that occurred during William Rufus's reign. And Henry had him locked up in the tower. Well, he was locked up in the tower on August 15th, 1100, exactly. Uh, on the charge of embezzlement and in February of 1101 this is how he escaped are you ready because I had a I found a different story than what you were talking about earlier oh Uh, he invited his guards into drinking I mean again this is at the beginning of it being an imprison an imprisonment so this is abby normal I guess in a sense but he invited his guards in for a drink and for some reason, they took him up on the offer. Also, remember, this is a time when people majorly drank wine. There was no such thing as clean water, really, to, that's drinkable. Well, in terms of convincing the guards, I mean, if you worked with the king, you've got a lot of influence, you're a bishop, and you've got money. Come in, have a drink. Well, while the guards were just downing this wine, he wasn't drinking any. He was just throwing it into a potted plant in his prison cell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a great image of my head. I love it. I know. But also... It's kind of like I, when you're like doing the, the, like the, the fake drinking, just like... It's like yeah. right behind you. <laughs> yeah. But also, imagine what a waste of wine. Well, if it's common enough, it's not much of a waste. But yeah, it's still a waste. Wine's tasty. Especially when it's your major form of drink too i would be more upset if he was wasting mean more specific but that's just me he got them drunk and he had had according this is a story he had had a rope snuck into the tower via a wine barrel which he used to climb down the walls of the tower and there he escaped to normandy upon I have a totally different story than you do continuing this too. He went to Normandy, incited Robert Curthose, Henry I's elder brother and rival. The Duke of Normandy. Yeah. Into an insurrection, rebellion. And he led the rebellion and then flipped sides and went back to Henry I. And quickly actually regained the good graces of Henry the first I mean it's it's not a ton but well let's just say I mean if if you got in the good graces of the king and at this point more than one king and then you're out of power you're gonna kind of do what you can to either in you know instate someone else as the king or go back to your old king power power you like power come on yeah so he did that whole situation there and at a point both Robert and Henry did calm down I guess and reconcile and a bit of sibling rivalry there when is there not sibling rivalry for a throne especially a powerful one fair point so while that was great and Rand was restored to his office he did, like you said, spend a few years in Normandy. Henry defeated, ended up defeating Robert at a point, I guess they retook up their dislike of each other at the Battle of Tinchbray, probably butchering that as well, according to Melissa's face. 
Would you like to say it the proper way? No, you go right ahead. I'll keep that. <laughs> no, no. You can, you can say it however you want. I don't know how to say these things properly. So I go off of what I see. And that's when Rand returned to England from Normandy. And he then quickly retired and barely ever showed up in public after that. Yeah, that's the that's the story of Rand's lovely. Yes, yes, that's what I'm calling him. Will you stop with the laughter? You're gonna make me break out laughing. <laughs> Helpful. Uh, maybe I should take the French one next time we do something. Oh, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Now, um, the the four that we chose that we both found the most interesting or unusual, they're not going to go in any type of order here. So we're just picking and choosing. So Lauren does two. I'm going to do two. She just did one. Here's my next one. Uh, this is going to be Alice Tankerville. And if you're not familiar with her, here you go, because it's a doozy. So not much is known about Alice's life prior to 1533. There is much, though, known about her from about 1533 onward, to a degree at least, as she secures a very special place in the history of the Tower of London. Because she's the only woman to have successfully escaped the Tower of London. So it's believed that she was a native of London. We don't have much, if any, information on her life growing up or her family. It isn't even certain if she was officially married to a man named John Wolfe or if they just had a common law marriage. But they're usually referred to as husband and wife. So in some capacity, they were married. And it's believed that she may have also been a prostitute, which plays into uh, the, the, the later schemes that she goes into. Yeah. But regardless of her early years, Anne's infamy begins in 1533. Now, two years prior in 1531, a massive amount of gold was shipped to England as a gift to Henry VIII from Cologne. And this was 366 gold crowns, which, yeah, Lawrence face is just, oh my God, yeah. Which today's money is just over 900,000 pounds or more than $1 million in one shipment of gold. Yeah. And in fact, the chest was kept in, a, a, it was a really obviously a large chest because that's a lot of gold and very heavy. And the ship that it was transported in, the chest was chained to the ship and had round the clock security. Also, it's Henry VIII. He's going to get incredibly upset if something were to happen to this chest. I mean, the man did have a lot of debt. The man loved his money. Not only did he love his money, he quickly spent his money oh yeah it was in the treasury and it was quickly out of the treasury oh yeah i mean i'm just thinking that that um golden something or other where he had the the wrestling match and the fencing with the king of france or something i forget what that was called the golden something but uh yeah i mean that was that was absolutely lavish and kind of no reason but again this is a massive chest of gold for the king of england henry the eighth none other and chained to the whole of the ship being transported with round-the-clock security. Would you like to know what happened to the chest when it arrived in London? It quickly disappeared. Sort of. Upon opening the chest, once the ship docked in London, it was empty. Oh, that's going to be one mad Henry VIII. Well, not only that, think about it. That's a lot of gold with round-the-clock security. How did it get out of the chest? I'm going to assume inside job. Oh, yeah. Very much. And in fact, the investigation took two years to figure out who may have actually done it. And that's how we get back to 1533. So they were able to pinpoint the thief, a pirate or a soon-to-be pirate, named John Wolfe, 
And he had been a merchant in the shipyard where the gold had departed from and was a member of the crew when the ship docked. And he was captured in 1533 and sent to the tower. While there, John would have a frequent visitor to his cell. And this visitor not only brought him food, but clothes and some other comforts that you couldn't afford on your own or that if you could afford you to have somebody else bring them to you, as well as some other benefits. But this visitor also helped to befriend some of the castle or the keep guards that were watching over John Wolf, which also allowed Wolf to receive higher end items such as alcohol and wine. His visitor was none other than his wife, Alice Wolf, née Tankerville. After six months in prison, John Wolf was actually released from the tower due to lack of evidence. And as soon as he escaped, he ran off to Ireland. As far as we un I can understand from the stories, he ran off to Ireland, leaving Alice in London in the care of one of the prison guards, John Baud, who plays a major role later. And not long after being released and after his fleeing to Ireland, new evidence was found that actually proved John was rightfully imprisoned, but also that Alice was his accomplice in stealing all 366 golden crowns. Now, after John Wolfe laid low for a year, he returned to London and finds Alice in the company of two very wealthy Italian merchants. Her husband, with her and two other, other friends, decided to conspire to kill these two men to find the location of their wealth and steal it for themselves. And under the disguise of, well, I guess un just under disguise, really, the group ferried Jerome de Georges and Charles Bench on a nighttime ferry on the Thames. And at one point, one of the men unsheathed the dagger and quickly murdered the two wealthy merchants. The group then took all the valuables from their bodies, including the key to their apartments, and then tossed the men's bodies into the river, hoping they, they would never be found. The bodies would later be found. And then the hunt for the murderers began. <laughs> all the conspirators, all four would be captured and immediately sent to the tower. Alice and John, interestingly enough, would both be charged as pirates because their crime had been committed on water. You could just make up anything you wanted, really. And they were both sentenced, sentenced to death via drowning by being hung into the River Thames. And the drowning part would be that they would be hung at low tide. And as the, the river rose, they would slowly drown to death. Yeah, horrific. Yeah, just, just horrific. Now, while in prison, Alice was actually placed in Cold Harbor Tower, which is very central within the entire keep of the Tower of London. She was cuffed to the walls, both her hands and her legs cuffed. And her cell had a very small sliver of light, so she was pretty much in darkness the whole time and consistently watched over by two prison guards. Her cell was also difficult to get to. You had to make your way to her cell, which again is in one of the most innermost cells in the tower of the entire Tower of London. You had to go, you go through Middle Tower, Byward Tower, and then go through Bloody Tower to get to Cold Harbor Tower. Now, it's not really certain as to why Alice received this amount of severe treatment, which was even considered to be severe at the time. But she was believed to be one of the most feared prisoners in the entire fortress. And it's a woman. Now, Thomas Cromwell, because again, this is during the reign of Henry VIII, apparently even received a letter from a prosecutor that stated, if the diabolic woman escapes, we shall be in great jeopardy. That's like putting a prisoner in solitary, but there's no particular reason for it. Or it's, it's so weird to hear that. Now, the two guards that she'd befriended two years earlier, John Baud and William Dennis, were also still prison guards at the Tower of London when she was there in 1533. And with their help, Alice was able to concoct a plan to escape. It's also believed that during the year that her husband was away in Ireland, John Baud had fallen in love with Alice. 
Alice had also managed, while in herself, to befriend the lieutenant's daughter, who was actually influential in allowing Alice, though, to remain in her cell. She could be now unchained from the wall so she could walk around her cell and not be just stuck against the wall the entire time. Dennis devised an escape route, and Bald would actually be the one to shuffle Alice outside the gates. Now, Dennis was at one point seen showing favoritism to Alice, and it was very soon dismissed from his service because you can't have that. And John Bald, though, was still there to help her out. And she would break out on March 23rd of 1534. Bald had been able to slip her some men's clothing, which also had a key to her cell concealed within them. It was believed that her cell was held only together by really old pins because it's also one of the most innermost cells. So it probably isn't used very much. And using a smuggled spoon, Alice was able to put the spoon under the cell of her door and knock the door pin out, walking out of the cell unnoticed, dressed in men's clothing. And then Bald and Alice made their way to St. Thomas Tower, which is now known as Trader's Gate, and they rappelled down the wharf below and into a small boat that was waiting for them. And then they very carefully made their way across the moat of the towers. Once safely across, they waited until the night watchman had passed by both of them. And again, John Bod is a guard at the tower and he's on shift at the moment too. So just keeping that in mind. They waited for the night watchman to pass when they were over in Tower Hill to continue their route. And at this point where they were, they didn't have much to go, much farther to go on their journey before they were free. They just needed to walk down a nearby road where Bod actually had some horses waiting for them. And as soon as they got to the horses, they could just cut free and go wherever they wanted. Unfortunately, with their freedom just in arm's reach, they never made it. Thinking that they were in the clear, they were soon approached by another group of night watchmen walking down Tower Hill. Though Bod would be familiar to them and the men said hello, one of them soon recognized Alice in her disguise and realized that's not a man and realized that she'd escaped. So both of them were then very quickly detained by the group of night watchmen and taken back to the tower, placed in separate cells. And there's actually uh, a document that actually recalls the events of the night. And it says, on Friday, about two of the clock in the morning, one Bond, the Lord Lieutenant's servant, came with counterfeit keys and opened the prison door where Wolf's wife was and conveyed her out of the tower with ropes tied to the embattlements. And after he conveyed her down, went down himself. On the wharf below, they hid for an hour. Then Bond found a boat and rowed them to the water stairs. At the end of the tower causeway, they were walking up Tower Hill towards a Mrs. Jennings house where Bod had left two horses when they encountered the watch. By Greenville's account, Alice was appareled like a man, and for that reason, the watch was suspicious and took both Alice and Bod into custody and took them to the Lord Lieutenant. Wolf and his wife shall hang upon the Thames as low, at, at low water mark in chains, and Bod is in little ease after he, he hath I can't read this. After he had been in the rack and shall be hanged. Now, Little Ease was not a, a cell I was aware of. It's an incredibly small cell. I think they said it was four meters squared or something along those lines. It's tiny. There's barely room to stand in. You can't sit down. You can't relax. You literally have to be standing, and it's small enough that you're sort of crouched forward. There's no moving room in Little Ease. And so it's kind of like solitary, but you're standing. The entire time it's awful and you can't move alice and her husband john were both sent to death and on march 31st just about a week or so after she was captured of 1534 they were placed in chains at low tides on the thames and then slowly drowned as the tide began to rise and according to a record by edward hall at the time and at the last she and her husband as they deserved were apprehended arraigned and hanged at the aforesaid turning tree where she hanged still and was not cut down until such time as it is known that beastly and filthy wretches had most shamefully abused her while being dead that sounds horrible yeah that does not sound i mean i mean punishment by death is no way fun but that that sounds like a very slow way to die 
and gross, painful. Before I get in to our next person, who is John Gerard, what? Am I mispronouncing that name as well? Because you gave me a look. Yeah, I was waiting for you to finish talking. Oh, I was just going to give a little little bit of historical background to the time period of this. Well, go ahead. So remember when we were talking about Henry VIII and the break from the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah. He could marry Anne Boleyn? Yeah. Do you know what that did to the country of England when it happened? Schism. Exactly. So imagine John Gerard is in the mid-1500s during the Elizabethan era. By the time that Elizabeth has taken the throne, the country is still divided. Very much divided between the Anglican Church, which is the church, and Protestantism, by the way, as well. You have the Anglican Church, which is the church headed by the royal crown, in this case, Elizabeth. You have the Protestant church, and then you have the Roman Catholic church. There's a three-way major divide going on. This schism is kind of like the time of the three popes. Confusing. Yeah. So when Henry VIII died, his son, by Jane Seymour, his third wife, Edward VI, a devout Protestant, took the throne. He did not want the throne to go to his sister, Mary, He tried to have it handed off to Lady Jane Grey, who ended up reigning for, what, 10 days, I think? And then Mary Tudor ended up coming in and retaking the throne from her, and Jane became collateral damage and was beheaded. But aside from that, during Mary's reign, of course, she wanted the uprooting, hence Bloody Mary, of the entire country back to Catholicism, which created a huge problem. And then you have Elizabeth who was Protestant, but she hid it very well for a period of time in order to save her life during Mary's reign. So when Elizabeth takes over, well, let's just say it wasn't good for you if you were Catholic. She wasn't as bloody or as ruthless as Mary was, who Mary was going about burning this, burning people at the stake left and right who were not Roman Catholic, but, but Elizabeth, if you spread anything Catholic, she was not happy about it. Let's put it that way. And you did end up in the Tower of London. So Jean Girard, who was, by the way, a Jesuit priest and served Catholicism during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. Well, let's just say he had a little bit of a problem. He got caught. But before that, he was born in 1564 to a wealthy family. And he was sent to an Eng- the English college out at uh, Douai and Rhymes. I'm not exactly sure where this is, but I'm pretty sure it's somewhere up north. Not 100% sure, but if you know, comment on the post. And then he spent three years there, and then he spent a year at Oxford, and then... After Oxford, he went to Jesuit Claremont College located in Paris, France. So he he was there for quite a period of time. And then he then returned to England after he was ill for a short period of time. So when upon his return to England, John was arrested because he didn't have travel papers. Or at least that was the reasoning used behind it. He was released shortly after for that reasoning, but he was again later arrested. He was put in prison for about three years from 1594 to 1597. And he didn't originally start out in the Tower of London, but he was moved to the Tower of London. John did manage, not exactly sure how, to continue to be a Jesuit priest in prison. It's the tower. He's a a Catholic priest of the Jesuit sector uh, in Protestant Elizabethan era England. Yeah, I'm not expecting him to not be tortured. 
and this is important for his escape, by the way, he was tortured pretty severely by guards. His hands and feet were attached by heavy weights in a way, and he was kind of just left hanging like that for pretty long amounts of time. That is some serious torture. That's like the rack, but worse. Yeah. Yeah. Your hands and feet were tied, or he was, he had the weights at his feet, but he was hung by his arms. So, like, your body is being weighed down by your feet. Right. Kind of like the rack, but a little worse. Yeah. And just left hanging like that for hours and hours on end. I don't, I, I, the sources I say just say long periods of time. I don't know what that means. That could be a couple hours. That could be one hour. That could be 24 hours. I don't know how long this poor dude was left like that. And so this also created a lot of damage to his joints and his body and uh, made it basically impossible for him to pick up a pen. Feather quill. Oh, was this a torture that I read about where they had him sign something, but he could barely hold a pen? Because of his dislocated wrists? Mm, that's not what I read, but I mean... It could have been somebody else. I was looking through a list. That could have been Overbury. I don't remember. Yeah, he completely, like, couldn't... He had such a hard time picking up pen. He was extremely weak. I mean, this, this affected him even during his imprisonment, of course. But it also affected his ability to do his work while in prison. Because like I said, he still continued being a Jesuit priest, even to a minimal extent. And he would pass notes in prison. And the notes were written in orange or lemon juice. Now, if you know anything about the citrus juices and writing with them, lemon juice, like you have to, you hold it up to a light or the fire and you can read it and it it becomes visible but then it re-disappears orange juice it just kind of burns it and makes it permanent you can read it but only once then you kind of have to burn it if oh, you maybe we should do an entire episode on the history of invisible inks exactly. <laughs> that would be freaking forever i mean just think about all the invisible ink stuff that was used during the civil war here uh, oh oh it's fantastic yeah i mean it's good but it'd be like a two three-parter series again I think I would just nerd out with my photography. I would just have so much fun. Okay. But continue nerding. Go that, ahead. Would, that would be a major league you episode. Yep. So he still attended things like mass and listened to confessions and so on and so forth. And of course, passed on those notes. After his torture, basically couldn't do majority of that th those things. He was just so weakened after he was tortured the way he was that his trying to re him trying to recuperate was just months and months and months and months. Then there was the attempt to escape, but he was successful in his escape. So in his weakened state, he was able to visit another gentleman that was also in the tower in a cell directly across from his? Also for being a Jesuit? I'm not sure. There's no mention of the why the other guy was in there. Oh. But we do know that that cell right across from his, it was really close to the stream. There's a stream, yeah, outside the moat. Oh. There's a like, stream right outside the moat. So he could hop on a boat if he escaped and just crossed the moat. Ooh. And again, he needed what? What's the what? What do you need to escape from a high tower, Melissa? Do tell. Same thing we've always talked about on all so all three of these so far. Rope. Exactly. So there was a rope that he used, and he used it kind of to cross the moat too, like it was attached at the other end. Oh, like a zip wire. Like a zip line, except uh, not as fun. A, a friend of his who was outside of the tower walls was the one to connect it and they and then he connected it to like this roof of the cell tower and uh, he tried to cross it he had an extremely 
difficult time because of his weakened state. Not the oh. smartest of ideas, I would say. I mean, yeah, he was going across, ended up flipping around, losing grip, kind of just hanging there for a hot second. And then by the time he had gotten across, he was so exhausted that another friend that was waiting on the other end had to help him get off the rope and up on the other side of the tower where the rest of the rope was tied to. Mm because he could not lift himself. And uh, that's how Friar Gerard made his escape. Oh, it was a successful escape. See, oh. yeah, you are correct. And did he continue being a Jesuit priest in obscurity or something? Oh yeah. I mean, he was still a Jesuit priest. Um, nothing, I, I didn't find exactly what happened to him after. It's, he just kind of disappeared. I'm assuming he continued his... Probably went into exile in another country. He probably just went beyond English borders where he couldn't be reached. Sounds about right. He could have gone up to Scotland. I don't really know. He gone over to France. France. Okay. Ireland, okay. as France you're has always been staunchly Catholic. So is Spain? Oh, yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the most. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, disappeared from record after that. All right. So uh, one more left on this list, then I suppose. <laughs> All right. So last on our list is a man named William Maxwell. And this is also going to play into the whole Protestant Catholic thing we were just talking about. And he was the eldest son of Robert, fourth Earl of Nisdale, and Lady Lucy Douglas of Ireland. And it's believed that he is born and raised in Terrigal's Castle, I think it is, near Dumfries. And his father died when he was young, and he was raised by his mother and brought up as a very devout Roman Catholic and a very big supporter of James II. And I'll get into why that matters in just a second. When he turned 21 in 1697, he attained his earldom, because now he was of age, and made a visit to the court of James II, who was at the time currently at Saint-Germain in France, where he was exiled. Because by this point in history, James II's daughter, Mary, who was a Protestant, had ousted her father in favor of her husband, William of Orange, during the glorious, bloodless revolution. So England was Catholic under James II, and his daughter rebelled to replace as queen, and now England was Protestant again. But there were still rebellions as the Jacobite Rebellion is about to emerge. And while William Maxwell was in France at the court of James II, again in exile, he met Lady Winifred Herbert, the daughter of the Duke of Powys. And her father was also a major supporter of James II. And her father was also in exile after having been caught in the Popish plot in order to try to kill Charles II, who was Protestant until he received his death rites where he changed to Catholicism. So he was Catholic for, I don't know, an hour before he died. But William Maxwell and Winifred uh, were married in 1699 at Saint-Germain and then moved to William's home in Turgle's Castle. Because he was a very staunch supporter of James II and England being Protestant again, Maxwell still very staunchly Catholic, he was the target of many, many assaults and even suspected of harboring Jesuits too, especially during the Elizabethan times. I think it actually may have started during Mary's reign because you had the priest holes, but I think it was particularly during Elizabeth's reign where the priest holes were kind of a bigger thing because the Catholic priests would then go into hiding. And a lot of Jesuits, I think, were doing the same thing too around the country. Now in 1712, Maxwell resigned his title of the fourth uh, of now the fifth earl of Nisdale and give it to his son William and then he decided he was just kind of live in luxury for a bit that was until three years later during the Jacobite rebellion of 1715 declaring his still undying support for King James II who he believed was his king and not William of Orange Maxwell joined forces with the rebellion at Hexham and also fought with General Thomas Forster 
he was very soon captured at the battle that took place in around Preston, and along with all of the other Jacobite conspirators were taken to the tower. He was tried, found guilty, and then scheduled to die on February 9th of 1716. Keep that in mind. Now, not long after hearing of her husband's capture, Winifred traveled from Turgles to London to try to secure his release, as one might do. And she even had a chance to speak with the then now King George I, because Mary and uh, William had already passed away and they brought in the Protestant Hanover family. So George I is now king. And she got to speak to him directly to try to plead her case. And she ended up garnering a lot of sympathy from the public for her case and release of her husband. She was unable to budge the king. Not surprising. And so not able to secure his release by talking, she tried to concoct a way to secure it elsewhere. Two days before her husband's execution date, Winifred had gone to see him and was even successful in convincing the prison guards watching his cell that she had actually been very gloriously successful in petitioning the king that her husband was going to get released before his scheduled execution date. She then even was able to give the guards coins that would then allow them to have a celebratory drink in his cell whilst toasting the new king. The following day, the day before the execution, she returned to his cell again. This time she was with her maid and they were wearing, well, at least the maid was wearing additional layers of clothing, but as the amount of clothing women wore at the time, it wasn't particularly noticeable, I'm sure. And at one point during this visit, the maid then removed the extra layers that she was wearing, leaving them in her husband's and, and the, her master's, the husband's cell. And then over the next, what I'm assuming is several hours, many of Winifred and William's friends would come to see him, each one declaring that they just wanted some more time with him, another conversation, and his very final hours before he's executed the next morning. Everyone who visited him came armed with some piece of a disguise that they had all gathered together to procure. After some time, William had ended up becoming dressed as a very early Georgian woman, complete with makeup, and was able at one point to walk out of his cell holding on the arms of another woman who had come to see him, one of their friends. All the while, the prison guards, though confused by all the people going in and out coming to see the Earl, were unaware that he'd already slipped out. Just out of curiosity, does this ensemble include the Georgian wig? If you're rich enough, I'm sure it probably does. Okay. But now the Georgian wig that you're necessarily referring to is going to be the latter, later Georgian wigs. We're talking George III. Georgian wigs is what you're referring to. This is George I. So we're talking more of not quite the curly hair wigs of Charles II and the spaniel wigs, but more of the colonial style rolled wigs. Yes. Yes. But uh, of course, if you were, I mean, aside from the, the rampant lice going on and everything, if you were rich enough to own a wig, you wore a wig. So I'm sure that there was a wig involved. Now, to give the appearance that her husband was still in the cell after he'd already slipped out dressed as a Georgian female, again, complete with makeup, his wife remained in the cell for some time, pretending to have conversations with her husband, even to the point of mimicking his voice to throw off the guards. And when she finally decided to leave, it had actually gotten dark outside. And the servant who was coming to light the candles in the cell, she specifically told them that her husband was saying his prayers in his room and he wishes not to be disturbed in his final hours. So don't go in there. She then left the fortress to return home to Ireland to oversee the transition titles from her husband to her son. Having slipped out, William then fled to France to be with James's court. And the guards the next morning to gather the prisoner to take him to his execution found it obviously to be empty. And immediately the king was informed about it and he was furious, of course, because he's part of a rebellion to throw over the Protestant 
monarchy. So yeah, totally get it. Not long after the act, very successful escape, Winifred actually wrote a letter to her sister declaring, quote, I had done George I more mischief than any other woman woman in Christendom. Just, I, I think that's just a great line. That's uh, quite a brag there. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And soon the couple, were re- they reunited in France. So now, okay, so keep in mind, the father has relinquished. So when he was captured, his title was relinquished anyway. But the father had also relinquished his title and given it to his son. So now his son is the sixth Earl of Nisdale. So the father now not having any titles to conform to or whatever he needed to do was kind of free to do what he wanted. Plus, he'd escaped. He needs to lay low a little bit. So the son now off and running his lands, his mom and dad booted off to France. They reunited. And then they ended up traveling to Rome, where they just lived in peace and luxury for the next several years. William died in 1744, and Winifred followed him just five years later. He escaped in 1716. He died in 1744. That's 30 years on the run there. Oh, I was going to say, that's quite a long time to be in exile. But yeah. I mean, if you could make your home without it, I guess it really doesn't matter. Home is wherever you are comfortable. There you go. And that is the last of our list, I believe. It is the last of our list. I think that was long enough. Yeah, we've been doing a kind of a <clears throat> long episodes lately. No, really. No. The next one's going to be even longer. <clears throat> What's the next one? Suleiman. Oh, might be about as long as the Velisca murders. Yeah, you know, it might be a two-parter as I well. I might have to make that a two-part, too. Uh, that's an understatement for, for what's going to happen with that one, because <laughs> your topics are good, but the other, the ones that I have, uh, I mean, come on, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go into detail about Suleiman. But aside from that, I think, uh, I think that'll do for this hi- episode of History Explains It All. What do you think, Melissa? You think that's going to yeah, I think I'm good. <laughs> Me too. Uh, so uh, we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. <laughs> Bye. Bye.